Here's a bingo. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of our podcast, Here's the Thing Though. My name is Aliha, and I'm your host for today. I'm here with my producer, editor, and all-round favorite person, Mitch Price. Hello. Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge the Darug and Kurungai people who are the traditional owners of the land that we are recording on today. We'd like to pay our respects to all First Nations people past, present, and future, and acknowledge that we're recording on stolen land and sovereignty was never ceded. So, my dear Mitchell... What have you been up to this week? Yeah, no, just been chilling. Actually, I watched a really good movie the other night that I want to talk about in this new segment I'm going to be calling right on the spot uh, <laughs> Mitch's Movie Review. I'll get a theme song on it soon. No, wait, <laughs> Mitch's Movie Minute. I actually like that. Yeah, you like that? Okay. So, I watched this great film called Election the other day. It came out in 1999, directed by Alexander Payne. And I feel like it's really relevant to this moment. And I think a lot of you guys would enjoy. It's about uh, an American high school during student elections as we follow a young woman and her campaign for school captain and also a popular social science teacher who absolutely despises her and her overambition. She's the type of overachieving know-it-all who is deeply involved in the student council and is on every committee as long as she can run it. The type that is immersed in the sycophantic bureaucracy that is student politics. Uh, not on the quest for change or anything truly meaningful, but simply power and status. So in the film, everyone is a politician, self-serving manipulators, and is a really great satire of liberal democracy, which I actually think, despite it coming out 20 years ago, really speaks to this current moment and the farce that is representative de- uh, democracy. So we'll get to that in a sec. Just before that, I want to give a trigger warning for the film because it's very much a black comedy in the truest sense and uh, has some really icky shit in it like pedophilia, grooming, statutory rape. But I think it uses all of that really appropriately uh, to make a greater statement on our current political situation. How about you, Sleeha? What have you been up to? My week's been pretty good, uh, a little stressful, but what's new? (laughs) Honestly, at this point, I'm not sure if my life is stressful or if I'm just really poor at managing it but we'll see. I did do something exciting. I did some recording with Flex Mommy for a project that she's working on. I can't tell you guys any more about that yet, but when promos come out, I'll discuss it more. It's really good. I'm really excited for you guys to hear it. Uh, I also just want to give a quick special shout out to the Shameless Podcast Girls, Michelle and Zara, who so kindly sent us some recording equipment to help us with our podcast. It's actually really nice of them and I thought it was super sweet. So I just wanted to do a quick thank you on the pod. Uh, something big that happened in the pop culture sphere online last week, at least for me, was the announcement of the lead cast for Miss Marvel's Disney Plus series. For those of you who don't know, Miss Marvel is a Marvel comic book character, she's fairly new, uh, called Kamala Khan. And the reason this is such a big deal is because she's actually Pakistani and she's the first uh, Muslim hero in Marvel. So the cast they announced for her is Iman Vilani, and she's an 18-year-old Muslim Pakistani Canadian girl. Which is obviously very exciting for other brown girls like me who are finally seeing some representation for ourselves, uh, especially when the only time you see yourself on TV is as a terrorist. <laughs> um, so the casting of Iman as Miss Marvel has been an emotional moment for a lot of us. And I wrote an article about it for Five Wife, and if you want to check it out. But it sparked a conversation about the struggles of growing up as a brown girl in a white ruled country. And so this week we are going to talk about a highly requested topic amongst you wonderful listeners. 
internalized racism. Yay. <laughs> but before we get into that, we have some follow-up from last week's discussion on IBG that we want to talk about. So last week we talked about uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the uh, notorious RBG. And while most of the episode was about her complicated relationship with issues like feminism and race, as well as our fears on who Donald Trump is going to replace her with, the latter portion was very much about the role figures like Ginsburg plays in our democracy and what that actually means. And the fact that their positions and the greater parliamentary system is undemocratic by design. The reason I bring this up again is because last week there was the first and maybe last, depending on how things go with Trump's COVID, uh, presidential debate between Trump and Biden. And the first question of the night was about RBG and who has the right to replace her. So I'm just going to play a short two minute clip from the debate. Just to be transparent, I have edited this down for time and also because listening to these people is just fucking boring. <laughs> but I would recommend that you listen to the whole thing if you're concerned about misrepresentation. So let's uh, roll the clip. Our first subject is the Supreme Court. President Trump, you nominated Amy Coney Barrett over the weekend to succeed the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the court. You say the Constitution is clear about your obligation and the Senate's to consider a nominee to the court. Vice President Biden, you say that this is an effort by the president and Republicans to jam through an appointment and what you call an abuse of power. My first question to both of you tonight, why are you right in the argument you make and your opponent wrong? And where do you think a Justice Barrett would take the court? President Trump, in this first segment, you go first, two minutes. Thank you very much, Chris. I will tell you very simply, we won the election. Elections have consequences. We have the Senate, we have the White House, and we have a phenomenal nominee, respected by all, top, top academic, uh, good in every way, good in every way. And uh, we just, uh, we won the election and therefore we have the right to choose her. And very few people knowingly would say otherwise. And by the way, the Democrats, they wouldn't even think about not doing it. If they had, the only difference is to try and do it faster. There's no way they would give it up. They had Merritt Garland, but the problem is they didn't have the election, so they were stopped. And probably that would happen in reverse also. Definitely would happen in reverse. So we won the election, and we have the right to do it, Chris. President Trump, thank you. Um, same question to you, Vice President Biden. You have two minutes. The American people have a right to have a say in who the Supreme Court nominee is. And that say occurs when they vote for a United States senators and when they vote for the president of the United States. They're not going to get that chance now because we're in the middle of an election already. The election has already started. Tens of thousands of people have already voted. And so the thing that should happen is we should wait. We should wait and see what the outcome of this election is, because that's the only way the American people get to express their view is by who they elect as president and who they elect as vice president. OK, Justice Ginsburg said very powerfully, very strongly at some point. 10 years ago or so, she said a president and the Senate is elected for a period of time. But a president's elected for four years. We're not elected for three years. I'm not elected for three years. So we have the Senate. We have a president it's elected to the next during election. that period of time. During that period of time, we have an opening. I'm not elected for three years. I'm elected for four years. The and the hundred million people. Joe, is it weird to say that they both have a point? I mean, Trump has a point. He was elected, and that means that he has given a four-year term to make decisions within the White House. 
And Biden is also correct because the most democratic thing to do would be to wait until the end of the, the election so the, the public can decide who they want picking the next Supreme Court justice. Well, what's really interesting listening to that clip is the fact how it just so perfectly elucidates the undemocratic nature of representative democracy, of parliamentary politics. Because we as the public have no actual decision of how their government is run. Shit is undemocratic by design. There is actually no decision making happening from the public. And it's really interesting listening to this discussion because they're both just trying to navigate the fact that the entire thing is undemocratic. But they can't say that, so they have to, you know, we're focusing on the wrong issues here. What do you think, Sleeha? Yeah, no, I actually think it's really funny because you're listening to them talk and you're like, okay, first of all, as much as we hate Trump, legally he's correct. Like if we're going to talk about the bureaucratic process and we're going to talk about the way this shit is run, like Trump is within his right to pick the Supreme Court of Justice in his presidential term, which he is currently serving. Uh, So yeah, he can do that. He has every right to do that. And some may argue that that is fair because he was voted in, although I mean... We could have a whole nother conversation on like Trump being voted in and how that works and the popular vote in America and all of that, which is just a convoluted mess. But anyway, um, but then there's Joe Biden, right? And it's so funny because I think you're so right. He is dancing around the point that because he says like people choose what's happening in the world by electing certain individuals. And it's just like, yes, that's exactly the problem, isn't it? Because you only have a certain amount of people that you can vote for and you can't really do anything if they're both crap. A lot of people are having this problem right now in America where they don't want to vote for Biden and they don't want to vote for Trump because both men are like rich, conservative white men that have got sexual assault allegations against them. Like they're both like rapists. (laughs) And it's just like, there's not much to choose from. And they have to like navigate that without actually saying it and like disillusioning their audience. So I also find it, I mean, in a sickening way, funny, but also just an indictment of the system. And this is, we're basically just showing this as a follow-up to prove our point, essentially. Like, this is exactly what we're talking about last week. We're like, what are you really choosing? What are you actually choosing? Because Joe Biden knows, Joe Biden knows that you're not choosing shit. And he's using that as a, like, argumentative point for the Democrats to seem like they're more democratic. But in reality, um, if you're not the one who actually chooses the people that you're voting between like what are you really doing like you don't get to choose who the democratic party elects as their nominee yeah i don't know it's just it's just sad (laughs) yeah it just reveals the entire process as a farce and yeah it's it's so interesting seeing them get so close especially biden getting so close to the the issue and then in the typical democratic way democratic the political party completely disregarding any sort of radical perspective. And that's the issue with liberal politics. While we talk about issues of uh, democracy and who is in positions of power, we completely forget about the point that this isn't democracy. This is a farce. And I hope we don't really talk about Biden or Trump much in the podcast because this isn't where politics is at. This is a spectacle. This is a farce. This is a distraction. Anyways, let's move on from that nonsense and get into the topic for today, which is internalized racism. I feel like probably a good place to start is just discussing what internalized racism is. Uh, 
It's basically when racism is internalized, duh, uh, by the people it's being perpetuated against specifically. So it's the acceptance of like notions of white superiority uh, by people of color and it can be both unconscious or conscious. Uh, I do feel like I want to make the like I mentioned now that you can't be by white people. So internalized racism is very specific to people of color uh, by, de- de- by definition. When white people are subconsciously racist by internalizing societal narratives of white superiority, they are just racist. <laughs> Lol. Uh, it's a completely different phenomena and it's not what we are discussing today. So in terms of internalized racism, probably a good way to describe it is like the way if you are ethnic and you're listening to this, uh, you are embarrassed by certain parts of your culture, the way that you try to avoid certain parts of your culture or talk down uh, things from your ethnicity. It's like a lot of you, I imagine, will relate to this if, if you've grown up as like an ethnic teen in Australia. Uh, but that's what we're going to get into today. We're going to kind of discuss what it is and how it manifests um, with people of colour, particularly using my, I guess, anecdotal experience. And I just want to preface this by saying that this is probably going to be a little bit less structured than usual. Uh, I didn't script a lot of this discussion because I think that the anecdotal stuff is probably what's important here. Uh, So we're just going to have a little chat and deconstruct some of my struggles growing up. Lol. I I know this sounds a bit like therapy, but I promise it's not that. (laughs) Um, But anyway... Where do I begin? I think maybe we'll just contextualize this with some early impacts of internalized racism on my life. Uh, are we going to start in the lovely childhood and teen years? Uh, I wanted to kind of get into the probably stereotypical but still surprisingly accurate and relevant examples of internalized racism in like Desi society particularly, so like brown people, which is like skin bleaching, avoiding the sun, marriage and marriage proposals, fetishizing light skin. I feel like that's where it starts for a lot of people. That's definitely where it started for me and that's probably the earliest example of internalized racism that I can think of. Uh, I remember when I was very young, maybe maybe five, six, seven, eight, around that age, and an older, I don't even think it was my grandma, just like an older auntie in the community told my mom to stop letting me play outside so much because I would get too dark and then nobody would want to marry me. (laughs) And I was very young and I like heard that and it actually really impacted, I think, my sense of self-worth and maybe understanding of like my skin tone and what it means as part of society. Um, If you are Pakistani, Indian, Bangladeshi or kind of any part of the Southeast Asian diaspora, you are going to understand like the inherent despising of dark skin that comes with these communities. Um, Probably the first time I was offered a skin lightening cream, I was probably like 11 or 12, I imagine. Uh, And it's just so prevalent. I feel like it's probably the best example. And I feel like it's a good one to start with because everybody kind of knows about it. Like white people know that this is a thing. Everybody knows that this is a thing. It's not something that is specific to one ethnic culture either. So I feel like that's relatable for a lot of our audience. Um, and just like the value that's placed on skin lightening for like beautification, but also marriageability. Because that's like something that really bothers me. And I'm gonna, it's going to become more relevant the more I talk about this issue. Uh, particularly the idea, like, like I said before, about me being less marriageable. Is that a word? marriageable yeah uh because of my dark skin um 
obviously it sounds absurd and I feel like when I say this to a lot of my white friends like they're really horrified (laughs) they're really horrified they're just like wow that must have been so traumatic for you how horrible I can't imagine ever saying that to anyone and I'm like look it was actually really normal that's the sad part it was actually really normal it wasn't the first time I heard it It wasn't the last time I heard it Uh, it was particularly bad for me because my sister my older sister is actually very fair Uh, she's white passing and we, I like she's from the she's the lightest on the spectrum of skin tones in my family, and I'm on like the darkest side. So we actually have a really big contrast in skin tone, which uh, I used to like ask my mum, like why why am I so dark compared to her? Like how are we related? Like this doesn't make sense because we actually have quite a strong distinction in skin tone, and to grow up being compared to that all the time as a standard of beauty is quite damaging. Um, especially because my sister is also very pretty, which is fine. But like to be pretty and for people to tell you you're pretty because of your fairness, she's just beautiful regardless of her fair skin. Like it's not an element of her beauty that I think is relevant. But culturally it is. Culturally that is what makes her beautiful. So to have people constantly talk about how beautiful somebody is and constantly equate it to her fairness and then to be the dark-skinned sister who's told to get out of the sun or else I'm not going to get married is like, I feel peak internalized racism experience for brown girls in particular, but also for, I mean, a lot of dark-skinned people. Um, And this fetishization of light skin is, it just permeates like every element, at least least in my experience of like Pakistani culture, but also like Desi culture, because I actually don't have a lot of Pakistani friends, uh, but I have a lot of Indian friends who have the same issue and Pusha Fair and Lovely the notorious skin bleaching cream uh, is an Indian brand. So it's kind of just everywhere. Anyway, then you move on to your teen years and, I mean, the colorism just gets worse because you, you know, become, I guess, more and more of an option for the aunties to, like, think about your future and your marriageability the older you get. But also, like, the expansion of what internalized racism looks like becomes more clear as you get older as well. Like, the intercommunity racism... Due to British colonial rule especially, I felt like that became clearer the much older I got, which is, I mean, it was better in a way because it made it more transparent for me and it didn't feel like it was just me. It's hard when you're a kid and you don't actually have any understanding of the world and everyone's kind of equating your uh, lack of fairness to like your worth, which is just a bit shit. But then you get older and you're like, okay, it was just colonization. It's not me, (laughs) which is comforting. Um, But you really, I feel like if, I mean, I was probably in my late teens by the time I kind of got there. In between, you're just in this desperate need to distance yourself from your culture and be as white as possible to, like, justify your humanity and likableness, which is really sad. Um, A lot of this is going to be a little bit sad for some people, like, especially listeners that don't find this relatable. I feel like others are just going to be like, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. But for those of you who haven't experienced colorism in the community, just sit tight, have a cup of tea. It's maybe a little bit sad, but I'm fine, I promise. (laughs) But yeah, like during your teen years, when you're so used to kind of feeling a bit shit about your skin tone, and then you live in Australia in particular, which is like quite white supremacist as a country. Uh, and we are woefully behind when it comes to any kind of diversity, uh, I guess, in any prestigious places in our society. Like we, we brag about being a multicultural country, but it's not really practiced in any actual important ways. Uh, but anyway, that's when you start, you know, being embarrassed about the food that you eat and begging your parents not to ever like give you desi food 
to take to school. Like my mom sometimes would like tell me to just take over leftovers and I was like, no. And I just like wouldn't take food to school and I'll buy something because there's no way I'm taking biryani to school because I don't want to be that girl who's like so Pakistani, which is, you know, I mean, just even the idea of being like, so Pakistani you know you don't want to look fresh off the boat you know which is ridiculous because I mean have you heard me speak there's just absolutely no way that I wasn't born here but even just having to constantly tell people that I was born here as well like there's real intense need to explain that I am Australian I promise I'm from here I'm not the other please don't call me the other I used to get really offended when people ask me where I'm from I still do but for different reasons now before it was just so like how dare you actually make me discuss the fact that I'm not like a white Australian. Whereas now for me, it's like, can you ask me if my ethnicity instead, please? Uh, but it's a different kind of annoyance, I suppose. But um, yeah, like something I guess that was maybe one of the bigger issues for me in my teen years was cultural dress. Uh, my grandma was a really big impact on my life in my teen years. I spent all of my, all of my time at her place because we lived like a street from each other. And I was like, I grew up in her house and she dresses in her full Pakistani gear Every day, like every day, no matter where she's going, she's in her shalwar kameez, she's in like her dubatta, which is like, it's the cultural clothes. Um, and I was like really, really embarrassed by that in teen years. Like I was so mortified. I didn't want to be seen in public with her. I was once like crossing the road, uh, coming home from high school and she was on the other side of the road and she saw me and was like, oh my God, obviously came up to me and say hello because I'm a granddaughter. And I was just like, so embarrassed because she was she just looks like the most brown grandma you've ever seen in your life and she's like she wears like those big joggers like the dad joggers with her like Pakistani clothes I can't explain to you how much that but I hated that like it was for me embarrassing and like on Eid my family we we all get dressed up in our Pakistani clothes and stuff and I feel like nowadays I love that you know I'm so proud of that it's like beautiful uh, I love my Pakistani clothes, but back then I was so embarrassed because it was just another form of being otherized. And it was just another form of showing how much I don't fit in. Because again, I didn't have a lot of Pakistani friends at school or anything like that. I was definitely like the ethnic minority um, among a lot of people that were like quite, not even, not openly racist. I didn't know a lot of people who were openly racist to Pakistanis, but it was like just this really underlying otherizing of us and I just oh I just don't want to make it worse you know like as a teen the last thing you want to do is stand out at least for me I hated it I want it to be normal I want it to be likable and unfortunately I actually couldn't see myself being likable and also being very Pakistani because that was my form of internalized racism right just this inherent understanding that my culture was on the complete opposite of like likable and like something that I actually want to be it was shameful I was embarrassed which I mean it's sad now to discuss and I hate that that happened but it did and I think I mean the reason these things exist is because of this conditioning of like value being from your proximity to whiteness so like earlier I mentioned like British colonial rule (laughs) but that's where a lot of this comes from maybe we'll do a little bit of a history deep dive later but I really really wanted to be white I would have given anything to be white all my online usernames were Samantha because it's a three-syllable name starting with s that's white I hate I also hated my name because nobody can say it Saliha is not actually like my name it's like my palatable white name that's more pronounceable that I use that I've been using since I was like 10 because nobody could say my actual name 
Um, so like just, I know every part of my life was difficult <laughs> when it came to cultural acceptance. Um, and even now, I mean, I still go by Siliha because it's just easier and I don't want to deal with people butchering my name or having to explain it 50 billion times. Like I can't do it. It's just exhausting. It's still exhausting, even though like this is my life and I'm actually okay with it. And I'm actually okay with my skin tone and my culture and my cultural clothes and all of that. And I still don't use my Pakistani like birth given name because it's like too hard for white people and I care about their feelings, unfortunately. Like, why do I do that? I don't know. Colonization, internalized racism. Uh, anyway, I guess that's kind of a big reflection of like what my teen years were like with internalized racism because I hadn't actually met many boys yet because I went to a girl's high school. Then you start to like boys <laughs> and it opens up a whole nother can of worms because dating, marriage and children when you're trying to understand your own internalized racism is complicated. I also just want to preface this real quick by saying that uh, my points on dating are probably going to be quite heteronormative because that is my like I'm going to be talking about my experiences particularly so I'm not discussing this as like a wider issue I'm this is anecdotal so it will be heteronorm- heteronormative uh I just wanted to, to let y'all know so I'm very sorry for those who are a bit left out in this part of the conversation limited to my experiences anyway uh I feel like this is kind of the time where you start to project your internalized racism onto other people and kind of onto your interactions with the world. Like this is when your friendships and like dating and the things you start to pursue and the people you find attractive become impacted by your internalized racism. Uh, I'm going to maybe do a quick commentary on the fetishizing (laughs) of like ethnic people and particularly ethnic women, I think, but that happens to everybody, I guess. Uh, a lot of people have an issue, especially brown girls, with people, you know, comparing us to food, fetishizing us, exotifying us, you know, our sexy, beautiful caramel skin. Uh, I've mentioned this, I think, in another podcast episode, but I have an Indian friend who was called, you know, a chocolate dip strawberry. <laughs> There's just like, I don't know, any weird food combination you can think of, we've been called it. Um, but here's, here's the thing, though. I actually was okay with that early on in my late teens probably even enjoyed it I would say a little bit because at that point you're taking any attention you can get like there are plenty of brown girls who have really played into the exotifying of their own culture and sexuality but it's because you're so used to like not being attractive and you're so used to not being the beauty standard that when like a white guy takes interest in you because you're exotic, it's actually a compliment. Like you feel like it's a compliment. You're like, oh, somebody of your standard looking at me. Wowee. <laughs> it's just like you're flattered. I was flattered. I was like, yes, call me your caramel princess. No, I didn't actually say that to anybody. FYI, in case my mom is listening to this, I never did. But I probably thought it at some stage because I just wanted to be liked and I wanted to be pretty and I wanted to be cute. And if that's the way that people were going to find me pretty and cute by exploiting my culture, then yes, do it, king. <laughs> like, And then you get older and you're like, ew, if you call me food again, I will actually kill you. Um, but like that is internalized racism. Like allowing yourself to be dehumanized and objectified for like white validation I feel like that was a really big one for me, uh, particularly kind of in the first year of uni, which is when I really experienced that. Uh, And then it kind of, I guess that expands to your dating experience because 
uh, especially like university where I found like a lot of brown girls that I was friends with and a lot of Asian girls that I was friends with, like pretty much exclusively dated white boys. And I'm definitely guilty of like, I guess, finding white boys more attractive than other boys. And I think part of that is absolutely internalized racism. And it's something that I've had to do a lot of thinking about uh, in the last two years in particular, like this absolute aversion to the idea of dating or marriage inside your own race. Uh, I remember being like, younger you know like 15 or something and just like convinced that I'm gonna marry a white boy and have my beautiful mixed skin caramel babies <laughs> and it's just like it's so sickening now like I think about that and I'm like ew but well not ew as in like I would be fine if that happened but it's more just like the fact that I was like hellbent on it and I used to tell myself that I was gonna like marry a white boy out of spite to these older aunties that told me I could never find anybody because I'm too brown and, like, it would just be, you know, the ultimate slap in the face because of their obsession with white pro- proximity. But now I'm thinking about it and I'm like, was that true or was I just using that as, like, a way to make what I wanted palatable and less problematic? <laughs> like, was I trying to pretend that it wasn't internalized racism and that it was actually just, like, me pretending that this is, you know, this is this is a protest. I'm going to date a white boy out of protest when actual, actually, like, that was so not the case. I was just suffering from internalized racism and didn't want to admit it um but yeah there definitely is an issue with like especially I think women of ethnic minority actually no I'm gonna say that this is everybody like not wanting to date inside your own race but like the dynamic is different uh you know, for example, I talked about this a little bit actually when Bachelor in Paradise was airing but like the emasculation of brown men um the idea that these brown men are like just so undesirable because they're either stereotyped as being like these creepy, like desperate, you know. I mean, it's just a stereotype of like Indian guys in your inbox on Instagram, right? Like it's pretty racist. Like it's very, very racist. And it's perpetuated by white people, these stereotypes. But then we buy into it as like brown girls and we don't end up dating white, like brown boys and we convince ourselves that we actually have a reason for it. But the truth is, I think a lot of it is internalized racism. I do think a lot of it is life experience, like depending on where you are sitting because I have pretty limited experience with brown boys. Uh but the few interactions I did have were less than savory. Uh, I'm a very political person and they were very problematic politically, quite like sexist and misogynistic and homophobic and I couldn't deal with it. But also I'm like, you know what? If like a guy from like any other ethnicity was treating me that way, I wouldn't generalize all of them. But I totally did in my teen years generalize all brown guys as being problematic and gross that I didn't want to be with. And that is internalized racism. And now that I'm older, I'm like, that was gross I can't believe I believed those things but you really it's an active unlearning process like you grow up having to navigate your own dehumanization and objectification by society by white society in particular like you grow up feeling like you're worthless and useless because of your dark skin you skin bleach you you try to scrub that right up I used to like exfoliate so much my skin was fucked (laughs) but it was like this deep set fear of tanning so I used to wear like 50 I mean I still wear 50 SPF sunscreen but now I just do that for health reasons but I used to do it because of like this like awful fear of like getting darker than I already am because I tan when I hang the clothes out like I tan really 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 fast I have tan lines from like going outside to like feed my cats like it's messed up <laughs> like that was I was so scared of that so scared of that the, like the horror of being any darker than I already was I was exfoliating like every day my skin was raw and red I had so many reactions in high school um I was always having issues with my skin and like that was a big part of it 
moving on from that and then kind of starting to be okay with your skin tone because white men fetishize it is really problematic and like I hate to say that was like part of my journey to self-love but it was and I feel like I should be honest about that it's problematic and it's messed up but it actually really helped me overcome a lot of my own self-worth issues and I think it's just more of an indictment of like society because the fact that like it's conditioning right and like you're conditioned from the get-go to find yourself unattractive unless a white person finds you attractive because they're the beauty standard and they're what you sh- they're, they're what you're supposed to be like vying for like the unattainable that you're searching for every single day um and then you get it and you're like this is it I'm beautiful now <laughs> now that they've noticed me I'm good my job here is done and I hate that that worked on me but it did um and now I'm in a different space to then but I definitely think that was a formative moment for formative moment for me which really really sucks and then it gets kind of awkward because then you actually start like being in a relationship with like for example a white guy and you're like am I doing this because I'm like happy or am I conditioned into thinking this is what I should be striving for in society which I'm not going to get super into today because Mitch and I are actually going to do a podcast episode later on these ideas um but I did want to mention it now because I think it's relevant to internalize racism Uh, But you can see this in literally any ethnic minority. Uh, Particularly, I want to talk about like interracial dating for a little bit with internalized racism because we really fetishize interracial dating. Like we really fetishize a white person with like a non-white person. And we talk about their like beautiful mixed babies. And I mean, some of you would see on my Instagram, I went on like a bit of a rant not that long ago on just how toxic the idea of fetishizing mixed race babies is. Because first of all, when we talk about mixed race kids, we're literally never talking about like inter-ethnic community kids. We're talking half white half non-white child and like oh my god mixed race kids are so much cuter than other kids oh my god can't wait to have mixed race caramel babies blah 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 and what we're actually saying is oh my god I can't wait to have a child that's even closer to whiteness than I am I can't wait for a child with increased proximity to whiteness because that is how I'm going to value my child's worth which is really bad when you put it that way but that's what it is like that's actually just what it is um and I think Speaking of, I guess, the double standard between interracial couples where one person is white and interracial couples where both people are ethnic but from two different ethnicities, like, we see that, like, not as praised. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about, like, I guess, the dynamics between ethnic and non-ethnic relationships. And, like, you see a lot of, I guess, brown girls dating white boys. You see a lot of Asian girls only dating white boys. You see a lot of black men dating outside of the, like, and dating white women. And that's like, there's so many commentaries there with misogyna. Like, there's like a real issue. There's like a real issue of like thinking that you've won by like dating up, by dating into white, right? Like you've succeeded. This is it. I've made it. And like, that is internalized racism. The fact that we just like can't comprehend worth in our own community. I also like briefly wanted to mention, because we'll get into this in another podcast episode, uh, like I said previously, but dynamics and roles that can also come when you are the person of color in an interracial relationship with a white person. Uh, It's not uncommon that in those relationships, the person of color tends to be like more insecure, have more feelings of inadequacy. They overcompensate by increasing their servitude in a relationship, making all about the white person that they're with, making all about pleasing the white person that they're with, making all about doing favors for the white person that they're with. Like that inherent power dynamic is obviously not balanced and it comes from internalized racism and the feelings of inadequacy that come with being not white, right? And just kind of 
backtracking a little bit to the emasculation of ethnic men, like the idea that ethnic women as well are like either too angry or psycho or political or picky for men of their culture. I often get told, well, I used to often get told, not so much anymore, that I was never going to find a Pakistani husband because I'm too opinionated. I didn't get that anymore because I'm not with a Pakistani person, lol. But like that used to happen to me a lot and it really impacted my views on, on like dating in the community and it really if anything furthered my own internalized racism because I was like yeah look at these backwards Pakistani men that I'm never gonna date and now I'm just like if I can be like a political Pakistani girl I'm sure there are political Pakistani boys that are like at the same level as myself who have had some experiences to myself but you don't have that kind of foresight at 17 years old you don't it's sad and it's true and maybe some people do but I definitely wasn't like aware enough about the world at that age so this accepted emasculation of men, this like demonizing of ethnic women in order to, I guess, justify and perpetuate the idea of interracial relationships being something to aspire to. Um, I also just wanted to mention like uh, non-binary, gender diverse uh, or trans individuals in these communities and like how they have to navigate all these issues as well. And it's worse for them, obviously, because... Uh, diverse gender identities are actually part of many cultures but have now been demonized and rejected through a lot of colonial imperial and religious indoctrination uh, that the west imposed over certain cultural groups and so now with internalized racism like a lot of it's perpetuated by imperialism and this is just like 10 times worse for gender diverse people who previously culturally would have been recognized and now because of the rise of like Western imperialism and Western gender binaries and Western, like, I guess, religions, especially with Christianity, like, it's just completely erasing all the stuff that previously previously existed. And now we have, like, mass communities that once recognized certain gender identities or sexualities, not doing that anymore because of Western imperialization. Because of, oh, imperialism, imperialization, imperialism, <laughs> imperialism. Speaking of religion... Uh, a side note I wanted to mention is internalized racism in the Muslim community, but specifically, I guess you would call it internalized Islamophobia, because obviously being Muslim isn't a race, I know, blah, 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 uh, but there are racial elements to this, and I'm including it in the internalized racism conversation, because I think it's relevant and fits here, and honestly, like, there isn't really another, like, word for this, like, you can't describe it as anything else other than racism, it functions like racism, so the shoe fits wear it, right? But, um... Something I find quite frustrating in the Muslim community is the demonization of women who wear niqabs and burqas from the Muslim community of all places. Like, you guys all know uh, how hostile Western society is to women who wear burqas or niqabs. You know, I mean, burqas are banned in a lot of European countries and they have been suggested, like, Australian politics have suggested a ban many times. It hasn't been approved yet. I mean, Pauline Hanson had her, uh, you know, controversial yet now, I guess, infamous entrance into Parliament wearing a burqa. But the point is, we all know that this is a controversial topic, okay? For those of you who don't know what a niqab and a burqa is or the difference between the two, so a uh, burqa is like a full covering that Muslim, some, some Muslim women wear, quite a minority I should mention, like, very few Muslim women do wear one, but they do exist. And then, in, so a burqa is a full covering. You can't see any part of the face. And then a niqab is a face covering that only covers under the eyes. So the, the eyes are visible, but the nose and mouth are covered, right? Uh, 
niqabs are also banned like in France and other countries. Um, I'm very pro the right to wear a niqab and burqa, obviously, as a Muslim woman who supports women's right to choose what they want to wear. Like I wear a hijab, which is also banned in several places, like some places, some areas in France as well. Uh, I wear a hijab and I'm proud of it and I support women who want to wear a niqab or a burqa. If that's what they want to do, they should be allowed to do it. Like I feel like that's not a controversial statement. However, you'd be surprised at the hostility that these women actually get from like within the Muslim community and it really it's really upsetting. Like you kind of expect the hostility from the West. We know how Islamophobic like America, Australia, Europe, etc. are. We know. It's not surprising. It's not new. Uh, we expect it. But something I've been finding really really fucking annoying lately actually is like how many muslim people are like pandering to white society by condemning the burqa and niqab with them it's becoming this like oh i'm not like these other muslims i'm assimilated i'm one of the good ones i'm the moderate muslim who doesn't you know i don't support this extremist behavior i'm not like them pick me i'm not like other girls blah blah blah. it's that vibe right it's really frustrating because you're just throwing these Muslim women under the bus for the sake of white validation. Because that's what it is. It is the pursuit of white validation. And that's what I actually think internalized racism is. Internalized racism, in my like experience, is the pursuit of white validation and the fact that you are willing to disregard and throw away any element of your culture your people in order to get that white validation and I don't mean to be so condemning when I say it because I think a lot of people are suffering it's like something you suffer from it's I don't think it makes you a bad person to do these things because I think I have a lot of sympathy for people suffering from internalized racism and therefore behaving badly to people of their own or other ethnic groups because like yeah the world is pretty shit to us <laughs> at least if you live in a white society it's pretty shit to us we deal with a lot of racism it's a coping mechanism it's not healthy I don't condone it but it happens and we have to unlearn it. But yeah, it is frustrating in the Muslim community because like, I mean, I actually reckon I'm going to do a podcast episode later on just like my ideas on hijab uh, and my journey with hijab, which I'll talk a lot more about my opinions on burqas and niqabs and why I actually really respect them. I think they're a form of resistance. But until then, I just wanted to mention how much I find frustrating the fact that like the internalized racism in the Muslim community has left a lot of us to leave these Muslim women to fend for themselves when they're already vulnerable to so much Islamophobia and so much hate, so much racism. They're already most likely to be like racially attacked. Um, they're already the most likely to experience hate crimes and be physically attacked. And we're already throwing them under the bus because we want to perpetuate the Western narrative of these scary burqa wearing women who need to quote unquote assimilate uh, just so that white people can like us more. It's frustrating. It's annoying. And this is exactly what like internalized racism is. It's just the valuing of white proximity and white validation. So internalized racism is pretty much just a desire for proximity to whiteness. Uh, we can see this in all the various forms of internalized racism that we've just discussed, be it burqa banning, skin bleaching, refusing to date in our own race, fetishizing mixed race babies. You know, it ties into this historic favoring of whiteness due to British colonization and imperialism and also like the different class and caste systems that kind of become tied to race and skin color. A lot of the things that you hear are things like how in certain countries uh, being fair was favored as a class issue because those that were dark skinned were darker because they spent more time out in the sun being like workers and being working class was unfavorable and gross and peasant-like and therefore you want it to be fair because it showed your class. And then there's like, you know, if we're going to talk about India, like 
proximity to whiteness after the British rule is like if you had fairer skinned kids, it's probably because you had some British blood in you. Uh, and that was seen as more desirable, obviously, because they were the ruling class at that time. And that's, I mean, that's still there. Like, how many years now? And it's still very prevalent in like brown culture and brown society, whether or not you're even Indian. Like, just if you're a brown person, I guarantee that these are the issues that you face. Um, just a quick one as well that I want to mention is how this value of white proximity also actually perpetuates the model minority myth, uh, which some people think is just the idea that some minorities are more palatable than others. I feel like it's really been reduced to that idea, uh, the model minority myth. But really, I think it's to show that some minorities are more exploitable for labor than others. Um, and part of this is by pitting them against less desirable groups if we're going to talk about america for example the model minorities are usually like asian and indian kind of groups right these hard-working smart ethnic people that are going to come in here and they're going to become doctors and engineers and blah 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 and this like these are still harmful stereotypes i think some people think it's like flattering we love that we treat indian and asian people as like this model minority they're gonna be super smart save the economy like no, it just if we have if we perpetuate those stereotypes, we're just saying that these people are exploitable. That we're going to use them for economic force and economic labor, uh, but not give them the same societal rights and positioning as the more privileged white people because they're still not white. They still don't have that privilege, and it's you know I mean it's inherently kind of fucked up under capitalism. Cause that's what it means. It's just exploiting labor, uh, but also especially because of the fact that modal minority myths are used to pretty much gaslight the black community, right? Because this is what happens. Like, white people will, like... Well, not white people. I guess the ruling class of white people. Like, if we're going to talk about America, for example, and immigration and the government, like, allowing immigrants from Asian and Indian communities. And these are, like... These are the good ethnic communities. They're going to, like, work hard for us. They're going to, like, build things for us. They're going to invent things for us. And then they use this as an example to, like, angry black people who are protesting for their right to survive in a country that's been abusing them since its inception. Uh, they use this as an example to discredit them and be like, look at these bad ethnic people. They could be like this good ethnic minority, but they're bad, they're angry, they're ruining things, they're destructive. And it's just like, it's just another way of like dividing and conquering ethnic groups in order to maintain white superiority. If you've got all the ethnic communities fighting against each other for scraps, and if you've got these ethnic communities being racist towards each other, then they can't all gang up against you, their actual oppressor and the actual person that is perpetuating these ideas. So I did want to mention that the ruling class has kind of sold us the notion that we will be accepted if we assimilate and how that kind of perpetuates a lot of internalized racism amongst each other and distracts us from bigger issues, but also like the anti-blackness that is inherently a part of this discussion. Um, and that is also a product of colonization. I wanted to mention that because I can talk a lot about internalized racism here as a brown girl, but it is 10 times worse for the black community. And I think it's really relevant mentioning that now amongst all the conversations that are happening with blackness, especially after the George Floyd protests and how I think blackness in general has really become a conversation that's starting to have some limelight. We're really starting to see more interesting, critical, wonderful discussions from black people about their experiences being black people in a society that is so hostile to them. And I guess I just wanted to like make that a point and be like, if you're interested in internalized racism, I imagine that I have a lot in common with like black women, but also you should go and read their stuff because there's a lot of literature by black women and black people in general on internalized racism. It's really great. I think you should read about it if you're more, I guess if you want more about this topic. Also, 
stay tuned because we are going to do kind of a follow-up episode for this one at some point in the next couple of weeks. Uh, Delving more into the romantic side of internalized racism, like we were going to discuss, I guess, uh, relationship dynamics, interracial dating, uh, more on that mixed race baby uh, discourse because I have a lot to say about that from my own experiences. Yeah, look, internalized racism, it's a really, really, really broad topic. It's really hard to squeeze it into like the 30 minutes that we usually do for a podcast episode. So this has kind of just been like an overview. And then I think down the track, there will be certain elements that we kind of do deeper dives in as we go. Well, thanks for listening. I think this is a good time to talk about our sponsors for the episode, which is you, our listeners. We're still, I mean, you've heard this a thousand times, we're still figuring out how to proceed with monetization and other things. So we'd ideally like to avoid being slaves to the capitalist machine. So if you thought our discussion today was interesting, thought-provoking and something you learned from, please consider donating to our PayPal link, paypal.me forward slash Saliha to support future episodes. The PayPal link is in my Instagram bio. So check it out over there at Saliha Official and give me a follow if you liked today's episode. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions or want to add to the discussion, you can email us at podcast at gmail.com and please include your name, pronouns and any other important info. And of course, remember to follow and subscribe. It really helps the podcast get out there. Sweet. Thank you. See ya. Bye.